You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. You guys can be seated, and as you do, if you will take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, I pray as we spend more and more weeks here, and hopefully as you are spending some time throughout the week in the book of Philippians, that your Bibles are just beginning to fall open here as you open them. This incredible letter that Paul has gifted to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Our text today is going to be chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. So if you'll be finding your way there, and as you are, I have a question for you. Have you ever had to do something that was so important? So important that while you were doing it or in preparation to do it, you started to tremble. If you're ready to do something that was so weighty, such a big deal, you knew this was so important that as you were preparing to do it or as you were doing it, you could not help but tremble. As I was thinking about that this week, I, I thought of shots in a few different ways. I thought about into basketball games where uh, the game's on the line, having to go to the free throw line to knock down some shots to seal it and some trembling that happens there. I thought about being a kid and one of my best friends was a diabetic and maybe stick a shot with him one time and trembling there. But I was driving back uh, from North Alabama today uh, with my wife and we were talking about this question and uh, she reminded me that uh, what we were driving back from was a wedding and uh, with the church in our demographic, thankfully I do a lot more weddings and funerals. And uh, been the last few weekends, uh, often are booked with weddings. Got another wedding this coming up weekend. But because of that, I get to stand with a lot of men right before they get married. And when that is happening, there is often, even just out of excitement, a lot of, of trembling because they know this is a weighty thing that they're about to enter into. Some weighty words that are about to be spoken and entering into vows that will bind you before the Lord and for a lot of people before you die. We've all had these experiences of some weighty things, some things that are a big deal that make us tremble. Paul in this text is going to lay out something for us that should make us tremble because it's such a big deal. So let's look at these verses together, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, therefore, so again, that, that should point us back, right, to what he just told us at the end of last week. In light of Jesus having a name that's above every name, that at that name every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. In light of Jesus' exaltation, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is urging these Philippian Christians to obey him. And not just when he's around them for accountability, but also when he's not with them is what he says here in verse 12. I mentioned last week that Paul, in many ways, is a spiritual father for this congregation. Maybe the majority of people there. We know at least the first who came to know the Lord was through the ministry of Paul. Maybe the majority of people there uh, at least are Paul's like, spiritual grandchildren at this point. So he's a parental figure for them. And hopefully you grew up in a household where your parents loved you enough 
uh, to teach you, to discipline you, and to say, hey, this, this is the way that you should go if things are gonna go well for you. And they do that in love so that while you're under their care, to, they go to a lot of painstaking to make sure you learn how to obey and do what is right so that when the day when you're no longer under their roof, when you're no longer under their care, that they can expect that you are going to do what's right. I know some of you in the room were just dropped off at college a few weeks ago, and there probably was some fear and trembling with your parents as they dropped you off because it's the first time this is getting tested. This is what Paul's saying here. You've obeyed when I've been with you. Now that I'm not with you, I trust that you're gonna obey what I ask you to do. And what does Paul ask him to do? What is the command here? To work out your own salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. I think it's important that we note Paul's word usage here. He doesn't say work for your salvation, right? But work out your salvation. Just one word that's different that makes all the difference in the world, right? Not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation. As Christians, again, Paul has taught us, Ephesians chapter two, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. It's not of our own works. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough in order to merit God's favor. Salvation is a gift. We can't work for it, but he calls us here to work out our salvation. The Africa Bible commentary says to work out your salvation simply means to follow the example of Christ. Again, the connection to last week, to Paul saying to have this mind among yourself that is yours in Christ Jesus, this humble, sacrificial love. This is what Paul is calling them to do, to, to follow the example of Jesus. And when Paul says to work out your salvation, what he's calling them to do is this word called sanctification. Can you guys say sanctification? Sanctification, it's a big theological word. Maybe you're familiar with, maybe you're not. But sanctification is this process that happens for us as Christians between what we say justification, when we're made right with God through faith, and glorification, when we're with Jesus in his perfect kingdom and we won't have to deal with sin anymore. Sanctification is the process to we grow more and more like Christ in between those times of justification and glorification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification like this. The sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to, live, to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. So that's how some men who died a long time ago define sanctification. But a man who died really recently, Eugene Peterson defines sanctification this way. Sanctification is a long obedience in the same direction. Sanctification is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience. The problem for us though is that we lived in a fast paced fast food society where I want everything right now. Probably wanted it yesterday, right? The truth is that sanctification is messy for us as Christians. It often feels like two steps forward and one step back, maybe even further steps back than one step back. This is our lives. 
We are called to a long obedience in the same direction. It's clear from the scriptures, we as Christians, we will never obtain perfection in this life. That is to come in Jesus's kingdom when all the effects of sin are done away with. Not perfection, but the question is, what is your direction of life? What direction are you headed in? Mentioned it before that as Christians, we aren't just looking at these snapshots in our life. Because if you just took these pictures of these moments in our lives, there would be little to nothing that distinguishes us between us and some pagan who, again, doesn't believe, any other believer, unbeliever out there. Our lives may look exactly the same in these moments, these snapshots. But the question is, again, what direction overall is our lives heading in? So maybe instead of just one picture, y'all remember these little flip books that picture after picture, they kind of walk through. Think about your life as just one long flip book. If you stop at any one of those pictures, again, maybe it's a really ugly picture of you doing something that looks like, hey, someone who's walking in step with the gospel would not be doing this. But again, what, as you keep flipping, what direction are you heading in? What direction is God's spirit working you towards? Sanctification, a long obedience in the same direction. This messy steps forward, steps back. But overall, what is our direction of life? Why does Paul say to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because this is a weighty thing, isn't it? Our salvation is not something that we should take lightly. We saw at the end of the book of Hebrews that the author of Hebrews says that there is a holiness without which none will see the Lord. There are consequences both in this life and in the life to come for all of eternity, for what happens right now. Again, it's clear from the testimony of the scripture, we are not saved by our good works. But again, the Lord working in us good fruit is evidence that we have spiritual life within us. But hear me, because I know people that are very introspective with tender consciences, when they read verses like this, it can be very detrimental for them. They can become a navel gazers, looking in all the time, never looking out, struggling, do I believe enough? Do I hate my sin enough? Do I love Jesus enough? Know that if you are in Christ, this fear and trembling does not mean that you should live in terror in any kind of way. There is no condemnation for those here in Christ Jesus, none. All the condemnation is gone if you're in Christ. This is not terror we are talking about here, but it does mean that we should live in all of God's greatness. Philippians 2, five through 11, again, what God has done for us in Jesus, Jesus' humble sacrifice, the proper response to what he's done and who he is as this exalted Lord of the universe is that we should live in awe and humble submission to him. And hear me, it is worth it for you to make sure that you are humbly bowing before Jesus now rather than bowing before him later in judgment. This is worth us working out now. So let us let the weight of this truth 
produce a holy and reverential awe and fear and trembling within us. Not dread, not terror, but know that this is a weighty thing. And God is worth living in reverential awe of, of his greatness and of his good, goodness. And hear me, this, this working out of your salvation takes place in the midst of a broken and backwards world. A world where you're going to encounter trouble. Jesus promised it. In this world, you will have trouble. We will have tribulations. It's through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. We are working out our salvation in the context of hardship and suffering. James, the apostle James, tells us that it is through these trials that our faith and trust in Jesus is tested. So a question I have for you is, what kind of trials are you worth, is worth it for you to go through? Are you willing to go through to have your faith tested and proven as genuine? And for, I think for Christians, hopefully there, there is nothing more valuable in all the universe outside of knowing Jesus is a knowledge that we actually know him, that our faith has been tested. I would say in many ways, it wasn't until cancer a few years ago for me that my faith was genuinely tested through trials that the Lord tests our faith and does it prove as genuine. This is part of what working out our salvation looks like in a broken and fallen and backwards world. But Paul gives us some really good encouragement here that follows this verse, verse 13. As you work out your salvation, says in verse 13, do this knowing it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what is really going on behind the scenes as you are working out your salvation? Hear me, underneath all of your willing and working is God willing and working. It's him willing and working in you. You can work out your salvation because God is at work in you is what Paul is telling us here. If you've grown up around the church, you probably have heard debates about God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility, how this works itself out. I think we, we read here in back-to-back -back verses for Paul, as Charles Spurgeon said, you don't have to reconcile friends. In Paul's mind, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not enemies. They're friends. They go back to back and verses back to back from one another. We have a responsibility to work out, but all the while knowing in God's sovereign goodness, he is the one working in us. As you work out your salvation, God is working in you for his good purposes. By his power, he is working, willing, in you. And Paul gives us two applications here. As we work out our salvation, what does this look like? Verses 14 through 16. The first one is in verse 14. He says, the way you work out your salvation, one way is to do all things without grumbling or disputing, he says. The second thing, he says in verse 16, is to hold fast to the word of life. But first, so what, what does Paul mean here? when he tells us to do all things, not some things, but to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why does he tell us to do that? Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, 
children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So why are you to do all things without grumbling or disputing? So that you can live as a light in the midst of a dark world. If you have read through the Old Testament, you know that Israel was God's chosen people that would be set apart to be a light among the nations. But I just finished reading through the book of Numbers and over and over and over again. I knew it was a lot, but again, was always surprised when I read through the Old Testament about how often it is that Israel is disputing and complaining and grumbling with Moses and with Aaron, their leaders, but ultimately with the Lord. We saw in the book of Hebrews, over and over again, the author of Hebrews told us, hey, don't be like Israel in this. That's what Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 10. Hey, God's given us this example and don't be like them. They're a bad example. There's a better way. And what's that way? It's the Philippians 2 way, the way of Christ that we saw last, last week. This humble, sacrificial submission is a better way to go as a believer. It's in step with the gospel. Grumbling and complaining, disputing is not in step with the gospel. But humble, sacrificial service and submission to the Lord and others, this is the way of Jesus. But hear me, I, I know personally Grumbling is the natural thing to do for us as fallen humans when things are not going our way. And when we grumble and complain, it often doesn't just affect us, right? You ever been on a team or in a group, maybe a group project, people are grumbling all the time? It spreads like wildfire, right? Grumbling, complaining, this, again, spirit spread all throughout Israel, all throughout the camp in ways that brought plagues with it. As Christians, it's not wrong for us to be real with one another, but it is wrong for us to grumble, to sinfully grumble and complain and dispute and fight with one another. Again, always for Israel, they began to grumble when they lost sight, when they forgot of who God is and what he had done for them, how he had redeemed them, how he had saved them. Over and over they forgot and over and over they fell back into this sin of grumbling and complaining. And it's easy to roll our eyes at them as we read through the Old Testament. But again, how often do we do the same, brothers and sisters? How often do we forget of all of God's goodness and grace to us in Jesus? that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Paul tells us, Ephesians 1. How often do we forget those things and begin to grumble ourselves? Paul is saying our grumbling causes our lights to be dim in this dark world. We are meant, we're told by Jesus, we are meant to be a city on a hill, a shining light for all of those around us. We're not meant to blend in with the darkness, but to stand out as lights, to shine as lights in the world. So the question is, for you individually, do you, do you shine like a light in this dark world? Are you being a light for Jesus, for those around us? Dr. King famously said, the stars only shine at night. 
We are in a dark world. We are in a broken world. It's how we began our service, praying about the brokenness that's all around us. So we see in the news, we see in our lives, there's darkness around, and it doesn't seem like it will ever lift. We know it will one day, but until that day, we are meant to shine as lights in the world, to be a contrast with the darkness. And just think about all of these things. Again, you only shoot fireworks at night, right? So you can see the beauty of the contrast. Had a guy stay in our house this weekend while we were gone who was going ring shopping. And when you go ring shopping for an engagement ring, they pull out the diamonds. On the back is the black velvet, right? So it shines forth all the brighter. You can see the, the beauty, the radiance of it. This is what we are meant to be as the people of God, to shine as lights in a dark world. I was reading a commentary this week that quoted cash money to get your shine on. You know, it's a good commentary when they quote Birdman. But Birdman is really just plagiarizing Jesus, a Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus says that we are lights. We are the light of the world. Again, we're meant to be a city on a hill. Our job is, according to Jesus, to not hide that light, to not hide it under a basket. Maybe you're more familiar with the song that you, if you grew up in church and children's Sunday school, again, are, are you to hide your light under a bushel? No, right? I'm gonna let it shine. You're gonna let Satan puff it out? No, right? We are meant to be lights in the midst of a dark world. This is what Jesus has taught us to shine as lights in the world by living according to his word. So what Psalm 119, 105 says, that the Lord's word is a lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. Jesus himself is the light of the world. And we as his people are to be a reflection of that light, to reflect his image, to reflect his goodness, his grace, his glory to the world in the way that we shine. And we shine by having Jesus' words abide in us as we abide in him. This is, again, what Jesus has taught us. We do all things without grumbling and complaining so that we can be lights in the midst of the dark world. The second way we work out our salvation is in verse 16. Again, to hold fast to the word of life, Paul says. Why do we do this? Gives us another reason. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So what is sanctification? Again, a long obedience in the same direction. I think maybe another way to think about our, the process of us growing as Christians is us learning to live every day in light of the final day. To live every day in light of the final day. This is what Paul is referencing here. He wants them to live as lights now, to hold fast the word of life now, because the day of Christ is coming when he will return. And notice the illustration that he uses here. It's an illustration he comes back to over and over again in the New Testament. It makes me feel better about repeating illustrations sometimes. Paul does it a lot, and especially this one, about running a race. The Christian life over and over again, according to Paul, is compared to a race, not just running a race, but also finishing the race, persevering to the end. And he says, we do this by keeping our eyes on the prize, on what's coming. 
All the men in my family are runners, but I despise running. I remember talking to my dad about just why do you like running? And I was surprised by my dad's answer. He said, I, I don't like running. I like the feeling that I get when I finish running. That's the Christian life in so many ways, right? There's many things that we don't like that we have to go through in this broken and backwards world. But we keep running knowing that there is a lot of goodness at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's gonna be a lot of good feeling that happens at the end of this race. So we persevere into the end. This working out of your salvation, this running this race, this is hard. It's hard to do in this life. And again, it's hard to do in our lives as Christians into the end. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body. I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. Paul doesn't wanna be disqualified from this race that he's been called to run by Jesus. Paul doesn't wanna have done all of this hard work, all this suffering, and then in the end be disqualified. So Paul calls others, as he does himself, to watch his life and his doctrine closely. Watch his life, watch what he believes closely. There's some fear and trembling that's involved here. But hear me, these verses are never to be meant to be lived out alone. The Christian life is never meant to be a solo sport. This is a team game that we're all called to play together. Again, I have never been successful at consistently running or working out when I've set out to do that by myself. If I'm gonna be consistent in those things, I need some accountability in those things. I need other people to come alongside me. And this is the case for all of us, brothers and sisters. All of our Christian life is meant to be lived out in community with one another. We need each other for this. We can't do this alone. And it's also encouraging here that we're not alone. Even God is with us in this. And he is working in us the whole time. And he promises, Philippians 1.6, to bring into completion the good work that he has begun within us. He's not going to leave you to yourself. Jesus is a good shepherd. He's not a clumsy shepherd. He doesn't lose any of his sheep. He's gonna keep you until the end. Look how Paul concludes this section. And we'll conclude here in verses 17 and 18. It says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul switches the illustration here from running a race to a sacrificial offering to laying down one's life. So both in ancient Greek and Jewish culture, when a sacrifice was being made, wine would be poured out. And Paul is saying, hey, I'm willing to be the wine that's being poured out as a sacrificial offering for your faith. For their good, for their faith, he's happy to lay down his life. 
And it hit me when I was reading these verses this week. Who else could have said these verses, these words? Jesus himself, right? All the sacrificial offerings being poured out, being offered, were all pointing to him. Again, we saw in Hebrews months ago, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus offered himself up, that he endured the cross. For the sake of others, for their faith, for their sake, Jesus willingly laid down his life. Again, this is the connection back to what we heard last week. In light of Jesus' humble sacrifice, we are to live together and before him in a certain way. In light of him laying down his life once and for all for us, we are to daily offer ourselves as living sacrifices before him is what Paul tells us in Romans 12. Paul is following Jesus and willingly pouring himself out for the sake of others. Paul can do this with joy in his heart, no matter his circumstance, no matter being in a prison, a Roman prison, he can still have joy in his heart in doing this because he knows the end goal, the end game. He knows he's doing this for the good of others, for the glory of God. And this is what's to fuel our lives as well, as well brothers and sisters. As we turn our attention towards the Lord's table, this is a table where we remember. We remember what God has done for us in Jesus. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus pouring himself out for our sake. There's some fear and trembling that is involved in this table. In 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is giving instruction to the church at Corinth about this table, he gives a warning. He tells people that are not turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus, who are not coming to this table in humble repentance and faith, to not come, to not eat or drink. Because if you do that, you're drinking judgment, eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. He says there's some people who even died because of this. And so again, there's some fear and trembling. If you're not turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus and him alone to save you, we'd ask that you would not partake of this table with us because we love you, because we care for you. But we'd love to talk to you more about what it looks like to know and follow Jesus, whether he is worth giving up everything this world tries to offer you in order to lay down your life in following him. But for those who are in Christ, who are turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. This table is a table of celebration for us because we know that no matter what you've done, no matter what sins that you've committed, no matter how many times you've grumbled and complained, no matter how many times you fail to shine as a light to those around you, that there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. That's the good news of the gospel that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus drank damnation dry on the cross for us. That's what we remember as we drink this cup. So if you are turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, it asks if you would take this cup, if you would take this wafer off the top here, And as you do that, that we would remember together that Jesus, the eternal Son of God,
the one who in humility took on frail human flesh, the word of God made flesh, the bread of life is what he calls himself. That Jesus had his body broken to the point of death on the cross that he might offer you eternal life. Again, Jesus told his disciples, I'm the bread of life. Through faith, whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Let's eat together. Jesus also, when he was with the disciples in the night that he was betrayed, took a cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Again, Jesus' sacrificial blood was poured out so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be washed from all of our sin. The promise of the scripture is true, that if you are faithful to confess your sins, that our God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's drink and remember that together. Paul says, as often as we eat and drink, we are proclaiming the gospel together until he comes. When we pray, Lord, give us grace to respond faithfully to this word. Father, we need your help. We need your spirit to come and make us not just hearers of your word, but doers. That in light of Jesus being the light of the world, that we would shine as lights in the midst of a dark world. That in light of the eternal blessings that you've given us in Jesus, that we would not be those who grumble and complain now over small things that are passing away. We need your help to turn our eyes off ourselves and off our sin, off the things of this world that are passing away and turn them towards our savior, Jesus, and his example of humble sacrifice. Father, do this work in us by your spirit and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.